Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, the show that looks at where the law has been and where it's going. I'm Mike Madison. I'm a law professor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with 35 years in the legal sector. This season, we are covering ALSPs, the sector of the legal industry called Alternative Legal Service Providers, even though to a growing number of people, they're not alternatives any longer. Maybe they're not the future of law at this point. Maybe they're the present as well. Here's a thought. What if we stopped speculating about legal services and started collecting data? This episode is about just that. Way back in mid-2021, the state of Utah took a big step forward in the alternative legal services space, creating the regulatory sandbox that allows legal services to be provided under conditions by different sorts of organizations. The question, what happened? Did the sky fall? Did the legal market get better for citizens? David Engstrom and Lucy Rica at Stanford Law School in Silicon Valley set out to collect and analyze the data. What did they find? Take a listen. David Engstrom, Lucy Rica, welcome to the Future Law Podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Mike. Okay. So, David, let's start with you. You're the co-director of the Deborah L. Rohde Center on the Legal Profession at Stanford Law School, and the center has just released this super report titled Legal Innovation After Reform, Evidence from Regulatory Change. Can you give us a quick overview and highlights of what this is about? Sure. Okay. So I can start all the way back at the motivation for the report, which I think was, was really twofold. And, and maybe some of your listeners know, but the justice gap in the U.S. Is, is really wide and it's really costly. Some of the best evidence we have suggests that in about 75% of the 20 million civil cases that are filed each year, at least one side lacks a lawyer. And so many, I think, rightly see this as a real access crisis. Uh, the second thing mo that motivated us then was some gathering evidence and some consensus that maybe the, the rules that govern the delivery of legal services are playing a role in all of this. And so, for instance, Rule 5.4, the bar on non-lawyer ownership, prohibition on unauthorized practice of law. These are things that impose a really inefficient model of service delivery on, on lawyers. And, and the result is it prices most Americans out of the market. Now, the good news here is that a couple of jurisdictions here in the U.S. following some jurisdictions beyond the U.S. have started to think about how to deal with this problem by relaxing those rules and relaxing those rules in, in ways that would welcome new types of providers into the system who might be able to ease this access crisis. And the two states that have done that thus far in the U.S. are Utah and Arizona. And so just in filling out the motivation for the report, you know, it's been about two years since those two states made these really important reforms, relaxing the usual rules that say that only lawyers can practice law, for instance, to see what might happen. And so two years in, we thought it was a really golden opportunity then to ask, okay, so what have we learned from this? Like what inferences can we draw now based on two years of evidence about what actually happens when you engage in these kinds of reforms? Hit a, hit a couple of the high points uh, in terms of what you learned. Sure. So, you know, the top line, I think, finding is that when you relax the rules in responsible ways, the sky doesn't fall. Because that's what critics of these sorts of things have been saying for a long time. Now, that debate has gone forward without a whole lot of empirical evidence. It's been undisciplined by real evidence. And that's what we think is the real value of our report. So, you know, some other findings, there's lots of salutary innovation that appears to be happening in these two states. Innovation in how legal services entities structure themselves. Um, innovations in how they actually deliver legal services. 
And importantly, especially in Utah, we're finding that those innovations are actually serving people within the the parts of the system where they're just really acute access concerns. So people facing things like, you know, debt collection actions or evictions or, you know, women who need domestic violence restraining orders. And so I think there's a lot of real salutary evidence that, or real evidence that, that again, the sky isn't falling and that indeed there's some, there's some really good innovation that's coming out of these two states. So, Lucy, you've been on multiple sides of these issues. So before you took on your current role at the Rhodey Center as uh, Director of Policy and Programs, previously you were at the Office of Legal Services Innovation in Utah and participated in the design of the regulatory sandbox, the, the Utah Innovation. So in what respects does this report sort of manifest things that you hoped or anticipated would happen coming out of the, the Utah innovation? And in what respect were you surprised? It's it's very interesting to sort of take a look. And, you know, obviously the report covers both Utah and Arizona, which implemented slightly different reform approaches. It's really interesting to be able to take a step back and look across entities that are authorized in both systems. And kind of say, okay, what's actually happening here? And what sort of frequencies are we seeing around the types of innovation that that may be being deployed? So I think in some ways, it's it's gratifying to see that both lawyers and non-lawyers are taking advantage of you know, these states' policy changes to develop new business structures around legal services, to take in money to advance, you know, marketing and technological innovation and rethink sort of how they provide legal services. It was interesting to me to see the continual central role that lawyers are playing in both jurisdictions, whether it's as legal service provider, many of them are being Several of these organizations are hiring lawyers as employees. So LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer are two of the big examples, Axiom and Elevate in Arizona, and then smaller shops as well. So that was that was surprising to me was the continuing role of lawyers um, as employees and then also obviously owners and managers um, and compliance officers. That was interesting. And then the other the other piece, I think, in answer to your question of what remains sort of outstanding is it's very clear to me looking at this that we're still in really beginning stages. Two years is not a long time to change a profession, any profession, and particularly one so sort of committed to precedent as the, the legal profession. You know, the innovations that we're seeing in Utah and Arizona are really interesting. I don't know that they are the blue sky of what we could see down the line um, as these changes become more familiar and entrenched and folks really, you know, start to kind of consider, okay, what are really creative ways we can change our business structure, change our service model um, to reach more people? And that's, that's the real question to me. Are we going to start to see organizations that really radically rethink the service, service provision from the one-to-one model to the one-to-many model and how, how that will be done using lawyers and using other service providers? I don't want to overlook the fact that the report does uh, talk about uh, regulatory innovation outside of the Arizona and Utah context. So as lots of listeners know, there are previous uh, innovations in England and Wales that the report talks about and also some down in Australia. And 
those don't quite have the headline quality that Utah and Arizona do in the U.S. right now. But I wondered if you could talk a little bit about sort of comparing and contrasting the more recent experience in Utah and Arizona with what was observed coming out of the innovations in England and Wales and in Australia. One way this report is really valuable is that it is the first effort to look at the effects of regulatory reform in a U.S. legal market. And I think that's important because these other places, England and Wales, you noted, that have ventured these types of reforms are, are pretty different in a lot of ways. Their legal systems are pretty different in a lot of ways. England and Wales indeed did relax the rules. They created a system much like what Arizona did, frankly, by relaxing the non-lawyer ownership rule and permitting something that are called alternative business structures or ABSs for short to come into the system and therefore to provide reserved activities or to perform reserved activities within the UK. These are kind of the core lawyerly things representing people in court and that, and that sort of thing. So in, th in that sense, there's a similarity between what, the, what they did in England and Wales and what they did in Arizona. The real difference between the two places is that beyond those reserved activities, the UK, England and Wales, is almost entirely unregulated, which means there's no real UPL restriction so long as you're not engaged in one of those reserved activities. And the result is it's, it's really an apples to oranges comparison. And again, just to go back to where I started, you know, I don't think we can draw great inferences from the England and Wales experience as to what might happen in the U.S. And that's the real value of this report. This is a, a first look two years in as to what actually happens in a U.S. legal market, which has all of those you know, unique aspects and not that vast unregulated sector. To the contrary, there's you know, very strong UPL prohibitions in place you know, in, in, in most or all U.S. states. So if the listeners go to our report, they'll see we, we step through the England and Wales reforms, but we pretty quickly say we actually think it's of limited empirical value and, and that you can't really draw great comparisons across the, the pond. Lucy, I know that you were also involved in the regulatory reform efforts that got started in California and that for the time being have been suspended because of significant pushback from the incumbent bar and the state legislature in California. So I'm wondering a little bit about the reaction to the report so far. There are other states in the U.S. that are still moving forward with the idea of regulatory innovation and reform haven't yet gotten as far as Utah or Arizona, but California for the time being is really the notable exception to the trend. And, and so I'm wondering in the time since the report came out, if you've assessed reaction from the political sector, from the bar, from colleagues and partners elsewhere around the world, how have people reacted so far? Yeah, well, David and I both um, were members of the California working group that was tasked with studying and then making recommendations around the potential of a regulatory sandbox to be launched in California. Um, and that work was essentially ended this summer by the legislature. And our report came out, gosh, David, probably like two weeks later, I think. You know, I mean, we've had a fair amount of interest from press. I think from the organized bar, I, we haven't received a ton of formal feedback necessarily. The scuttlebutt that I've been hearing is kind of, you know, it's sort of the way we are in our country today that you you read and you you interpret how you want to interpret it. So I haven't heard a ton of deep inquiry into the report necessarily from the organized bar, but it's still early yet. And I hope that we will have the chance to come and speak um, at more events. I hope that people reach out to us. I think we'd be happy to, you know, obviously, um, 
talk about the report and engage in discussion. We do have a plan as well to have an ongoing version of the data portion of the report. So, you know, looking at entities that are coming online in Utah and Arizona and presenting sort of the basic facts about those entities in a kind of ongoing updated clearinghouse online. So I hope that that will, people will continue to engage and just look at the reality of what's happening on the ground and consider, you know, whether and how that impacts their position on regulatory reform. So David, I don't know if you have a different um, take on the, the response. No, I, I don't. I'll just keep harping on what I see as the value of the report. You know, it does bring empirical facts to light in a debate that's largely lacked them. And Lucy and I were both on the, the California Working Group. We were both appointed as, as part of the State Bar Working Group process. And we worked for over a year on this. And, you know, throughout the debates we had, and these were all public hearings, they're all fully available. But, you know, we, we often had debates that weren't disciplined by any real any real facts. And instead, I think the regulatory reform area is an area that has too long run on anecdote and, and speculation. And so we think our report starts to fill that void a little bit. The other thing I'll say, and this is maybe a little bit of a dig at the California legislature, but I'm going to do it anyway, which is the working group that we were part of was tasked with making a proposal, making a proposal to the state bar. The state bar would then forward it to a combination of the legislature and the Supreme Court. And none of these reforms would ever happen because of anything we said in the report, but rather because the powers that be decided that they were a good idea. It was a proposal. It was meant to arm policymakers with information that they could then use to try to solve a really thorny problem that affects millions of Californians. And here's the dig. The California legislature, in shutting this down, chose less information over more information. And we think that was really unfortunate. Well, I am a licensed member in good standing of the State Bar of California and have been for 35 years. And because I'm an antiquated graduate of Stanford Law School, uh, I'm also well acquainted with many, many lawyers of the next generation before me. And so the I'm well acquainted with the politics of the bar in California and the interaction between the legal community so organized and the state legislature. And so I was extremely disappointed by what happened in the California experience recently, but not terribly surprised. Let me switch gears quickly, though. Lucy mentioned that you know, you've got this plan to continue to collect data and, and document the evolution of what's happening in Arizona and Utah, and, and link that to what David said at the outset, which is that the chief finding from an empirical standpoint here really is the sky is not falling, despite all of the the doom and gloom predictions of skeptics of what was done in or has been done in Utah and Arizona. I want to ask you about the other side of the equation, right? If the sky is not falling, how are you planning to assess the upside, right? So access to justice crisis, meaning that there is some vision of justice, sort of a better a better world out there. How beyond new types of entry and new types of organization and entity uh, delivering legal information and services. How do you measure whether the Utah and Arizona innovations are actually directing those states and the communities in the right direction? Yeah, that's a that's a challenging question. I think, um, it, you know, obviously it's the question that's asked consistently about the changes in the UK. You know, how do these impact access to justice? Um, and it will be the question that's acted, asked repeatedly by folks around, rightly so, around these changes. For a second, I'm going to put my Utah hat on um, as a, you know, kind of 
entrenched member of that project. But, you know, from the beginning, I think it's been very important in this, in considering regulatory reform, and I would say this is true of Arizona as well, to remember that when we're talking about access to justice and the new services that are being provided by these entities, we're talking about a gap that is much broader than what perhaps the term of art has meant. Um, We're talking about a gap that affects millions of people, that affects low-income and indigent folks for sure, but also has significant impact further up the economic spectrum to middle-class Americans and small businesses. So we have to look at how those folks are accessing and and being able to um, engage with legal services in new ways by these new providers. And sometimes, you know, that may still look very much like what it has historically. It may still look very much like engagement with a lawyer. Sometimes it may not look like something that we have traditionally understood to be anything like legal services. It may be facilitated by a software platform or maybe facilitated by a non-lawyer. It's a thorny, thorny question because there's so many variables at play and we are not the only ones that will be working on it, that's for sure. I know that IELTS, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, is working on this, and National Center for State Courts. I believe Pew is also looking at this. So there's a lot of different entities who are who are looking at what's happening in Utah and Arizona and thinking, how do we, how can we get at the impacts here of these reforms? But I do think it's going to be a while before we're able to say much about what the ultimate kind of impact has been. Sure. So, you know, I think the access to justice area is a, is a policy space that's really suffered from an inability to benchmark change. So, you know, I opened by saying, look, in 75% of 20 million filed civil cases, at least one side lacks a lawyer. And these are debt collection actions and eviction actions and foreclosure actions and domestic violence restraining order cases. Um, those are only the cases we can see. Those are the cases that actually appear on dockets. And, and the point is, that's really the tip of the iceberg. And beneath that iceberg is just an enormous amount, like tens of millions more Americans who don't get into the courts at all, uh, can't get a lawyer, don't know they have a legal problem in the first place. You know, there's a, there's a long literature on that. So there's there's a basic benchmarking problem. It's hard to know how much of a dent one is putting in that. I will say that like one of the possible virtues then of regulatory reform is you get more transparency over that. And maybe you just develop some ability to benchmark and see what's working. So Utah built a sandbox. That's a space within which entities can come forward and seek what amount to waivers of the usual rules that govern legal services. So rule 5.4 UPL or both in Utah. In order to oversee that sandbox, the Utah Supreme Court created uh, what amounts to a little administrative agency. And indeed, Lucy was the executive director, the first executive director of that, of that agency for a period of time. And they collect data. And so as with so many other places where digitization is transforming business practices and government practices, like here, digitization might bring a measure of transparency. Like you actually can say, okay, how, you know, okay, regulated entity, you know, you've been in the sandbox for two years. How many folks have you served and with what results? I think David makes a really good point. And I think there are still many states that are considering how to, whether and how they want to engage with this, you know, rethinking the regulation of their legal services. And I think that aspect of collection of data, you know, not just licensing a new, a new role or a new entity, but actually saying, how can we use regulatory reform to better 
regulate and better understand and better measure legal services. We have not historically done that at all. And there's many things we could measure. There's the cost of legal services. There's the quality of legal services. There's the duration it takes for people to get help. There's understanding more about incomes, both legal and financial. So, you know, it's not a part of the Utah, of the Arizona reforms. It does cost money to do. But, you know, to the extent that we want to better understand and improve the way that we're serving people, I think that's a key component because otherwise we're, we're just sort of still operating in the dark. And it's a big contribution that the law schools can help participate in. Right. That's a big service that you're, you've performed with this report and the research that's going to follow on for building with the, the data collecting efforts of the office in Utah itself. I did want to turn for the last part of the podcast to note that you have two co-authors on the report, in addition to the two of you, uh, Graham Ambrose and Madeline Walsh, who are both, I understand, students at Stanford Law School. And so I wanted to first credit them because uh, you credited them, and so uh, to, to toot their horns uh, as well, because I'm sure that they made substantial contributions to this project. But I understand from reading the report that to a significant extent, the report is a product of your working with a group of students at Stanford, in part as part of a, a course or curricular project. And I wondered if you talk a little bit about that, the design of the research project, how students were engaged, and, and what you think your students took away from this experience. So I can start by saying that this was uh, this was a project that we performed that we did as part of what's called a policy lab, and this is a special kind of a class at Stanford. It's the best thought of I think of as I think as a, as like kind of a, a program separate from our clinics. Our clinics have students who are providing legal representation to a client out in the world, and we and that's of course such an important part of legal education nowadays. The policy labs are meant to do something similar. They're meant to be projects that advise an entity out in the world, maybe a government or a nonprofit, but help students develop policy analytic skills, right? And some of the strategic counseling that we all know lawyers uh, do lots of. So this is a policy lab. Our client was technically a committee of the Access to Justice Commission in Michigan tasked with thinking about regulatory reform. That's why we completed this project. We were, in effect, advising them and trying to bring evidence to them that will help them think about the prospect of regulatory reform in the state of Michigan. And we had a wonderful set of students that included Graham and Maddie and many others. They were the ones who, as we got to the finish line, were, were, were drafting. And so they're actually you know, in the byline of the report. But there were many, many others who were along for the whole journey and who interviewed legal services providers, and uh, and really helped us try to think about you know some of the conceptual work we do in the report, where we talk about different types of innovation that we're seeing on the ground in Utah and Arizona. And so I just can't say enough about policy labs as a way to bring students together to do really cool, concrete, applied, efficacious work out in the world. And I also can't say more than enough about our students, including, including Graham and Maddie. So... Lucy, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the students reacted as they were going along to what they were learning, what they were observing about how the tectonic plates of the the legal profession and the legal industry appeared to be moving. Were they sort of flowing with it? Were they surprised by it? Were they sort of shocked and stunned by what they found compared to what they expected? 
Yeah, they're a fantastic group. And actually, uh, Graham and at least one of the other students have continued on and are part of our Civil Justice Fellows program at the center, where they're continuing to do research and writing on this in this area. So in that way, for those two, at least, it was particularly interesting. <laughs> but um yeah, I think, you know, I, I actually don't know, David, I don't know, if, I can't remember which ones of them had taken professional ethics, uh, you know, legal ethics. For the ones who hadn't taken it, they may not have realized how different this is, like what a big deal this is. But but I think overall, they were really interested in the opportunity to speak to these new providers, to ask them, you know, why are you participating in, a, in kind of a regulatory reform project? Um, what are you trying to do? Who are you trying to serve? I think they really enjoyed that aspect of it. And I think overall, they the value to me is, you know, that they get a chance to think critically about the regulation of the profession and think critically about the rules and say, you know, are these rules really serving the public interest? And in particular, obviously, the broad ban on UPL and the broad ban on non-lawyer ownership. You know, do we really need such broad bans to effectively serve people? Or are they actually in hindering us from effectively serving people? And if we relax them, what would we start to see? Um, and so I think we learn the rules as part of law school. And it's it's in all other aspects of law school, we think really critically about, you know, whether these are the right kind of interventions. And now we get the chance to do that in the legal ethics space as well. So yeah, I think they were a great group. I mean, it's just an honor to work with them. I think I saw students with their antennae going up and realizing that there is a future that we can't quite glimpse just yet, but there are lots of indications of it in our report. If your listeners actually um, go and read our report, there's the likely future of legal services, I think, in the next five, 10 years will involve a lot of entities that we haven't quite seen just yet that deliver legal services with a hybrid mix of lawyers, non-lawyers, and software. Like the unmet civil justice need is just too great. And I think the political pressures are going to be too great. And though there were setbacks in California this summer, for sure, I think it's I think regulatory reform will eventually gain momentum. And we really will have that future with that hybrid mix of lawyers, non-lawyers and software. And I think our students sitting in the policy lab were realizing that and realizing that there is this future. And this goes back to one of Lucy's, find, you know, you asked her what she found most interesting or most surprising in the report. Is that a lot of this innovation is lawyer driven, and so I hope that our, sta- our students here at Stanford Law School uh, are seeing this and saying, "Wow, okay, this is going to happen." And some of it may happen with non-lawyers creating entities that deliver legal services, but more likely, and maybe the best versions of it will involve lawyers at the helm finding new and better ways to extend their reach and to serve more clients. And and maybe some of those who came through your policy lab will. Uh be inspired to uh, take up the take up the fight themselves. It sounds like some of them are continuing on already with the, the work that you're doing at the center. So David and Lucy, we need to put an end to this conversation for now, but obviously the, the substance of the conversation will carry on in other forms and media. So I want to thank you both for joining me today on the Future Law Podcast and for sharing the results of this really, really important and interesting study that you've completed. We'll have a link to the study, of course, in the show notes when we distribute the the episode to come. And I look forward to staying in touch with both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. This is a real honor to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for listening to the Future Law Podcast. Next week, I chat with Orly Lobel, a law professor at the University of San Diego, who will be talking about her big new book about the power of AI and robotics in society at large, including law. 
If you would like to share your thoughts on ALSPs or the future of law, then send us an email at futurelawpodcast at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us via Twitter at the Future Law Pod. Also, if you're enjoying our show, don't hesitate to rate and review us on Apple or Spotify. Thank you to our executive producer and editor, Paria Tahirzadeh. Bye for now.